Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. Today, we'll be talking to Julie Gibbings, author of Our Time is Now, Race and Modernity in Postcolonial Guatemala, out this year from Cambridge University Press. Dr. Gibbings is the director of the Center for the Study of Modern and Contemporary History and lecturer in the History of the Americas for the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology at the University of Edinburgh. She is the, also the co-editor of Out of the Shadow, Revisiting the Revolution in Post-Peace Guatemala, out this year from University of Texas Press. So hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Elena, for inviting me here today. Um, well, I'm really happy to talk to you about this book. So let's start with, with sort of the basics. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this particular book? Thanks, Elena. Um, the story of how this book came to being, in much like the book itself, really eschews a neat linear narrative. When I began graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I was interested in the history of developmentalism. But the more and more I understood about that history and the ideas and practices of development in the global South more generally, the more I was struck by the importance of understanding the 19th century particularly how ideas of race intertwined with liberalism and also with philosophies of progress. And this struck me as particularly important um, in the context of Guatemala, where 20th century Cold War developmentalism was direct, like directly a strategy of anti-communist containment that also ultimately became genocide. So my drive was to understand the exclusionary and racist Guatemalan state at the moment it was forming and consolidating as a republic in the 19th century and how this shaped Guatemala's 20th century. And I found this really unique case study in the Department of Alta Vera Pass, um, where there had been both German immigration and it was a large indigenous frontier, and there were lots of ideologies of racial um, whitening and progress. When we're talking about Alta Verapaz, where does it fit within Guatemala's geography and historiography? What is the context you're writing about? So Alta Verapaz is geographically situated in the northwestern part of the country, and it is largely um, Maya, that is Kikchi and Pokimchi being the two major Maya groups. And it also has a rather unique place in Guatemalan history and imagination. During the conquest, it was a region that was fiercely independent, and as a result became one of Bartolomé de las Casas' famous experiments in the so-called peaceful conquest. And as a result of that experiment, um, and the fact that the region lacked you know, silver or another profitable good, it remained very much a colonial periphery. And it wasn't until the mid-19th century that things radically changed. 
the region became a center then for coffee production, and thus one of the economic hearts of the nation. And it also attracted these German settlers, um, the Protestant immigrants of, you know, apostles of progress type thing that every Latin American nation wanted. Um, by the early 20th century, some Guatemalan intellectuals even believed that Altavera Pass, once this peripheral indigenous backwater, could become the center of national project progress through German immigration and racial whitening. So the region itself has a rather unique history that often is quite neglected. Um, but rather than simply being an exceptional region, I think it was also a place, like a lot of frontiers, where national anxieties and aspirations could sort of play themselves out. And so one of the one of the things that you use to sort of frame the book is um, arguing that Guatemalan history um, contains within it a sort of politics of postponement, and you're building off a number of theorists, um, but for example, by defining indigenous resistance to things like coercive labor on coffee plantations or land displacement as, as something that was anachronistic or anti-modern, German settlers and Ladinos, that is non-Mayan Guatemalans, coded Mayans as unfit for citizenship yet, right? Like always in the future. So what, what made this such a helpful way of thinking about what was going on, particularly in the region you're talking about? The politics of postponement was a really crucial framing for me. I think that it really helps us to capture the potency of historical time, ideas of progress, and how these related directly to questions of citizenship, belonging within the nation, and race. And what I was trying to capture was how state officials and coffee planters postponed citizenship for indigenous and racialized others to an indefinite future rather than, you know, foreclosing it altogether. They left it open as a possibility not yet achieved. And they did so by drawing on very common 19th century ideas of historical progress and time. But this was more than just rhetoric. It was also a calculated effort to contain, to contain perceived racialized threats, to naturalize racialized hierarchies, and to foreclose on other political projects and ideas that were building and in the works. So it was a way of justifying a kind of certain kind of political and economic economic order that benefited certain people. I also think that the concept of politics of postponement captures the feeling tone that underlies exclusion, what it must have felt like to Kakchi laborers for to hear their demands for citizenship, for equal rights, for free wage labor, to be put off to some future, and the kinds of frustrations and feelings of injustice that it must have also generated. And I think that these kinds of ideas effective dimensions of the declaration that some people were not yet ready um, are really important to understanding why marginalized people later join revolutions, why they find um, populace appealing, and why they fought so hard to imagine um, worlds otherwise. It's a really powerful argument, and I think it does capture a really powerful uh, sense, of, sense of that, that postponement, that desire, that, that need for change. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of your book. Um, you have you have two parts, and in the first part, which you call translating modernities, you trace the 
the contradictory process of liberal nation building and the entrance of coffee into Alta Verapaz, emphasizing the role of German settlers in bringing coercive labor practices and land dispossession to the area in ways that hadn't been as present. Um, and you show how Ladino liberals and German settlers both insisted um, that the uncivilized Mayans were not ready for citizenship. But you also talk about how Mayan patriarchs and how liberals argued for their own rights and developed distinct visions of progress. So can you share a little bit some of the strategies that Kekchi patriarchs and um, other Maya activists used during the late 19th century? Yeah, so an important part of this question is really how Kekchi patriarchs in particular had long held positions as mediators between the Guatemalan state and indigenous communities, a role that they had played um, as part of the conquest and then later colonialism. And they really sought to maintain these positions through the dramatic changes of the 19th century, the rise of coffee capitalism and liberalism, so forth. To do so then required that they continually balance between being liberals and, and capitalists and also patriarchal elders to village indigenous villagers who um, were reproducing their communities socially and spiritually. So Kekchi patriarchs used a number of different tactics in the late 19th century to adjust the changing political and economic context brought with coffee production and a wave of new settlers. So, for example, when the liberal government passed new legislation on land titling, declaring that all untitled lands um, were national lands or tierras baldios, and requiring them to be surveyed and titled, Kekchi patriarchs were among the very first to petition the state for lands that they occupied. In surveying their communal properties, as was required by the law, however, they melded together the scientific practices of land surveying with pre-existing indigenous landmarkers. In Kekchi cosmologies, these landmarkers were also often signifiers of mountain deities known as tutsutukas. And by incorporating them into these new land tenure arrangements and into these surveys and the maps that they became, they were blending together scientific and indigenous perspectives. And they were endowing these maps with multiple different meanings. This was important because it both filled the requirement of the state's agenda um, and allowed them to say, here we are, we are liberals, we are you know, potentially capitalists who are who are privatizing property, and to help reproduce the indigenous community's sense of belonging to place and the long-recognized boundaries between communities. Kekchis were also, um, patriarchs were also very keen to present themselves um, and to become successful coffee planters. And they were equally interested in protecting their status as indigenous elders who looked after the interests of the lower class Mayas. This meant that at times, these Keche patriarchs sought to transform their communal properties into um, coffee plantations. And then they often claimed that the people living on those communal properties were actually plantation laborers employed by them. And as fit into Guatemalan law, part of the strategy here was to protect those rural Mayas from being called for forced labor duties on the plantations 
of Germans and Latinos. And so to prevent them from experiencing that kind of exploitation. This move was controversial, both among state officials who wanted these laborers and needed laborers for German plantations and the plantations of Latinos and others. And it was also controversial among Romayas themselves, who feared, sometimes rightly, um, that Kekchi patriarchs were um, turning these communal properties into private plantations. And in the unrest it caused, we also see some Kekchi patriarchs arguing quite vehemently for the abolition of coarse labor altogether. And so it is in these dynamics um, that we can see how Kekchi patriarchs were in a really tricky situation in the late 19th century, trying to balance between different and often conflicting interests between the state, other plantation owners, and Romayas. In all these cases, they attempted to hold together different ideas of progress and notions of citizenship and belonging. Um, and often their efforts um, to become coffee planters, for example, were simply not recognized by state officials and their alternative visions of progress, their calls for the abolition of coarse labor were largely um, ignored and um, disavowed. So an easy way that uh, historians could have told a very similar story would be that the, the patriarchs were sort of duped into or bought into this liberalism at the expense of, of their culture, which is not the story that you are telling and not actually what your book shows. Um, one of the things your book takes really seriously is, is both the, the Maya patriarchs um, imposition of their own ideas onto liberal ideas or into the political space. And one of the things that that is most striking in your book, I think, is is how you discuss the temporality aspect of unsettling modernity, unsettling liber liberalism that happens in the, in these encounters. And so you show how Kekchi activists' engagement with both liberal ideas and their own uh, cultural values created what you call a revolutionary time, a time that diverged from the 19th century teleological and linear history. And so... In order to think about what this means concretely for our listeners, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the story of Juan de la Cruz from chapter three. And um, you argue that um, there's this is an example of the Chekchi trying to force Ladinos to recognize another place in time. Sure, and that's a really, really powerful example. Sometimes it's hard to capture these moments um, unless they come out in a kind of moment of rupture, right? Um, that explodes into the archival record. And that example of um, Shukunap's revenge is one of them. So the story is basically in 1886, there was a frost that struck the region of Altavera Pass and this caused massive um, damage to coffee plants as well as to many other crops, including subsistence crops. Many um, Altavera Pensenses, Ladinos, as well as Mayas, interpreted this natural disaster as an act of revenge of the mountain deity Shukanep, who is the most powerful Tutsutuka in the region. And this was because in the months leading up to the frost, a Ladino spiritual leader had led a group of Mayas to pray um, to Shukanep and to seek his goodwill. In the aftermath of the frost, 
Some believed that they had elicited the revenge of Shikanap for the evils of coffee production. And so you can imagine from a Maya perspective um, what that meant in terms of how they understood their world. In the aftermath of the frost, then they understood these events as, you know, this powerful mountain deity setting their world straight and they flee their labor obligations on coffee plantations and they head to the mountainsides in many cases. Rather than reading these events then from a the from a secular perspective, um, an understanding of historical causation, e.g. that natural disasters are not the acts of man deities, we can see them from the perspective and worldviews of Kekchis. And this worldview included an understanding that not all historical events um, are caused by human and natural forces, but sometimes by supernatural ones too an understanding of the world that is wrapped up in the actions of mountain deities, for example. So in fleeing their labor obligation, then what I argue is that Kekchis were also asking or demanding that Ladinos recognize their understanding of the world as governed by the actions and will of mountain deities like Shukanap, who responded to violations in the moral order, including the exploitation of indigenous peoples. So in analyzing that, I think we can see how there are these other alternative ways of rendering time um, and of thinking of historical causation itself in this history, and it's just a, really a matter of one finding, the, you know, the, the magic archival record and events that show this, um, and then being willing to read from a different kind of perspective. So this is a great place, I think, to talk about your methodology more generally, um, and and I'm going to quote you here on on how you characterize the methodology in the book. You say. Throughout this book, I have tried to understand the making of Alta Vera Paz from the contingent perspectives of a variety of participants, including middle-class Ladinos, Kekchi patriarchs, rural Kekchi laborers, German coffee planters, urban working classes, and state officials. I assess their asymmetric information, expectations, and power to uncover their mutual misunderstandings and distinct worldviews. So in chapter four, for example, you use oral histories um, about a half-German, half-man, um, half-cow that was said to patrol German coffee plantations as a window into understanding Kekchi, what you say, Kekchi philosophical interpretations of coffee capitalism. So here's another example where you're taking seriously um, from the perspective of the worldview of um, the Kekchi uh, world makers, how they are approaching, not just as a kind of folklore sense, but as a really a philosophical engagement with capitalism. So this is this is such a great aspect of your book. And I really think it's one of the reasons that um, every story just really grabs the reader. But so can you talk a little bit more about how you managed to bring all these different threads together? Because it's also quite a difficult task. Right. It was definitely, um, I definitely wanted this book to be based on, you know, a multivocal narrative since I was trying to capture this conflict, this political and ideological conflict among Mayas, Germans, and Ladinos over very different worldviews about different political ontologies. 
it wasn't easy work, though, to move between these different framings and viewings of the past and to, you know, there's a lot of revising process um, to take into account different perspectives um, and the kinds of information that they had. In the example that you mentioned, I use oral histories about this half-man, half-cow, known as El Quej, or the Black One. El Quej, as you know, patrolled plantations at night, and he has several elements um, which speak to the experience of living on a coffee plantation. Um, so, for example, El Quej is said to be not you know, only policing the boundaries of the plantation and, you know, preventing workers from fleeing. But he also has an insatiable desire for eggs, which are symbols of fertility. And he's continually stealing these eggs from workers. And he also steals other things like monetary items and objects, and he gives them to the plantation owner. And so in this, he's a kind of inverted Robin Hood who steals from the poor to feed his bottomless appetite um, and to enrich um, the plantation owner. He is also born of sexual transgression, right? He is born of a German coffee planter having sex with a cow. And he can only ever be killed by lightning. So the, these caves live on for generations and generations, inciting fear everywhere they go, that they go. And I think that all of these elements are profoundly symbolic. They are metaphors and they are allegories. And we can use them as a window into understand how Kechis understood and analyzed their own experience of um, racial capitalism in coffee plantations. So rather than turning just to Marx, for example, I think we can also dissect these, his, these oral histories and other sources for their philosophical content. And they tell us a great deal about how Kekchis and other actors viewed their own world. And of course, on the other hand, Germans, for example, were well aware of the figure of Elke, and some of them believed that it was real and, and some of them didn't, but they also understood their plantation economy from a very different set of um, backgrounds, of information, of expectations, of cultural understandings that led to different interpretations and different kinds of actions. Let's move on to the second part of your book. In, in the first part, you set up the world that's being built by coffee capitalism. And in, in the second part, which you call aspirations and anxieties of unfulfilled modernities, you take that world and show how um, the unfulfilled promises of modernity create revolutions and unrest over and over again. They create these desires for change. Um, and so instead of a single Guatemalan spring, for example, you highlight multiple and you, you trace back before we even get to thinking about Adbens or um, or the Guatemalan dictatorships, these these unfulfilled hopes that are quashed again and again. So, um, for example, let's let's look at the story of Jose Angel Ico and how does the, his history tell us about the promise and the threat of Kekchi demands for citizenship rights and and freedoms? Yes, that's a really important question. Um, and in the 1920s, um, in the wake of, of World War I and the 1918 influenza pandemic, there was this brief um, democratic opening in Guatemala. And it is at that time that one of the most important peasant leaders, Jose Angelico, um, 
comes to the foreground. And he builds on the unionist coalition that had ousted the then dictator Manuel Estrada Cabrera and inaugurated a democratic moment. And so Eco forges this political movement he calls the unionist club Freedom of the Andean. And this club makes demands that many Kekchis have been articulating since the, 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 19th, the mid-19th century, including things like the abolition of forced wager, wage labor, access to education, equal rights for indigenous peoples. And his movement is extraordinarily powerful. And he uses this moment of electoral politics as well to gain a lot of adherence and to really try to shape the national agenda. But the backlash is also important and, and quite massive. Elites in Guatemala City, statesmen in Alta Vera Pass, as well as coffee planters, all dismiss the demands made by this unionist club, um, led by Jose Angel Ico, altogether. And they draw very much on the politics of postponement, declaring that Mayas are not yet ready, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's and there's also a backlash um, locally and regionally to people who had participated in this. And so many in rural Mayas in the 1920s then also began taking further actions and engaging in labor strikes and land invasions to keep pushing forward the agenda set in the early 1920s by Eco. By the 1930s, Eco basically finds himself rotting in a local jail and charged as being a communist and so forth. And this history of political mobilization from below, the use of electoral politics and state and other efforts at containment um, in a democratic moment makes the 1920s, I think, a really important and neglected period in Guatemalan history. We often focus almost exclusively on the Guatemalan Revolution of 1944 to 54 as the kind of one moment of political opening, and we paint everything that came before it as just one dictatorship after another. But what I try to do in this book is to show that really isn't true and that we're missing a lot of the historical genealogies at play. Um, in fact, there's you know genealogies between people. So Eco's great nephew becomes an important leader during the revolution, and there are many other people who um, either had relatives or they themselves who gained their political teeth in that first moment in the 1920s. And even many of the ideas of the revolution are first tossed about in the early 1920s. And so also the backlash, the pattern of backlash and repression um, is also clearly evident in the 1920s as well. So we have much to learn, I think, by refocusing um, um, on the 19th century and on particularly in the 1920s in Guatemala, I think. So while we're talking about the 1920s and the 1930s, let's talk a little bit about um, the history of Germans in, in Guatemala and in the Guatemala nation. So um, you, your focus is also on German settler colonialism. And so you show how the history of Alta Vera Paz and the German 20th century is often quite entwined. And so how did, how did German settlers influence Guatemalan politics in this period? That's a really great question. And, you know, the, the question of German influence on Guatemalan history and politics is, I think, very important and also somewhat vexed. For a long time, scholars wrote um, the history of Germans in Guatemala 
in one of two kind of diametrically opposed ways. The Germans were either you know, the beacons of progress, whose history was cut short by World War II and the expropriation of German properties and the internment of Germans, or Germans were entirely responsible for Guatemala's dependent economy and its racist society. I think both of these tend to depict Germans as apart from Guatemalans, as sort of a diaspora that is socially and politically insulated. And I think the actual story is a lot more complex, um, in part because Germans were very enmeshed in Guatemalan society to the point that who counted as German and who did not becomes pretty slippery by the 1930s or even the 1920s. And that's because German settlers, like many settler immigrants around the world, established families with indigenous women, Kikchi women, largely in this case, and produced, you know, mixed race children who then, you know, as they mature and become their own social group, really complicate this racial and national coding. Indeed, as I sort of gestured to you earlier, for a brief moment in time, there was even this idea of German and mild racial mixing as a kind of nascent national mestizaje project in Guatemala, somewhat akin to mestizaje in Mexico. So more than just shaping the economy, I think Guatemalans played a really important role in the national imagination. And when we begin to acknowledge this place in the national imagination, and we begin to acknowledge German integration into Guatemalan social and political life, then we also, I think, end up reconfiguring other moments in Guatemalan history. And in in fact, I think there's a lot of Guatemalan historians of the 19th and 20th century who've almost entirely ne neglected or omitted German presence altogether and um, the connection to Germany, obviously. So, for example, the events of World War II are often left out of histories of the Guatemala in the 1930s and 40s. And it's actually quite bizarre when you consider that this small but extremely wealthy population were deported and interned in the United States and then had their properties expropriated and nationalized, leaving the Guatemalan government um, with really quite a massive amount of land profit and profitable coffee enterprises right on the eve of Guatemala's 1944 revolution. But even more than that, if we connect these stories, those of those intimate histories of entwined social lives, like the interracial families, with these histories of internment and expropriation, I think there's actually quite a lively story to be told that radically reframes many of the most important periods in Guatemalan history. I think it's so interesting that that expropriation of German property absolutely prefigures the expropriation of land under the Guatemalan Revolution. And so how does this carry forward into the 40s and 50s? And in all fairness, you know, historians of the Guatemalan Revolution have often been compelled, I think, to understand the revolution from the point of its demise, from the point of 1954, this CIA-supported military coup that brings to end this period of, of social and democratic reform. And quite naturally then, what they've 
emphasized and looked mostly at is the 1952 agrarian reform, which is often understood as leading to a radicalization from below. And then there's charges of communism that alienates the elite as well as United Fruit Company and that makes the coup all but inevitable and helps us to understand Guatemala's descent into civil war and ultimately genocide. What these histories miss, I think, is this longer durée and this German component. Um, and that just they also miss just how much of the land that was awarded during the Grand Reform was actually from the nationalized plantations of Germans, right, that were nationalized on the eve of the revolution. So if instead we view the revolution from, you know, a more longer durée, picture and we begin, you know, from the perspective of World War II, we see a number of things. First, um, the revolution itself in 1944 was extraordinarily influenced by the rise of German National Socialism and its response in Guatemala. Guatemalan dissidents very much understood and associated Jorge Ubico's Guatemala with his support for Germans, particularly his support for German um, Nazis. And German Nazi influence was widely, like, way over-exaggerated as well. Just um, And the revolutionaries also then understood themselves in anti-fascist terms, and they understood themselves in that more global picture um, wrought by World War II. They read the Atlantic Charter aloud when they stood on a podium, for example. And they were and considered themselves principally as anti-fascists. Secondly, we also see how the nationalization of, pro- of German properties on the eve of the revolution set off expectations among Romayas that these lands would be redistributed among them. So by the time that the 1952 agrarian reform comes along, many of these Romayas had been demanding and organizing for the redistribution of nationalized properties for almost a decade. And that helps us to understand why um, it takes off quite the way that it does. Thirdly, the majority of the land that was redistributed outside the United Fruit Company properties was actually the nationalized properties of Germans. And if we examine that history more closely, we see how the Guatemalan Revolution was much more nationalist than previously imagined and much more firmly connected, again, to the events of World War II. I think, fourthly, we can see that that many of the demands that were made during the Graham Reform itself were also about historical justice and the restitution of lands that had been dispossessed in the 19th and 20th centuries. And some of that is connected to the Germans themselves. And then finally, from like an international diplomacy level, we also see this shift from an economy that was very much focused in the 1920s on Germany to one that is much more focused on the United States and how the United States, the the relationship between um, the United States intervention, um, like the blacklist and the internment of German citizens in World War II was related to the um, anti-communist components of the the revolution, and particularly the coup. So many of the same actors who worked with the United States against um, 
the the Nazi threat in World War II were the very same people who also worked for the United States in um, the overthrow of our bands. So there's a lot of historical genealogies in at play, and I think that that when we reconsider the Guatemalan Revolution from that perspective of World War II and from a longer durée, we actually get a very very different view on. Um, the origins of the revolution and how it plays out. So let's talk, let's go back to um, the desire for revolution that this politics of postponement has created, because um, you've made a very compelling case for understanding that the, the way that German influences and the particular context of um, Guatemala had affected allows us to tell a slightly different story of the Guatemalan Revolution, but I, I want to get, understand a little bit more about how your um, you make an argument about how this desire for revolution because of citizenship and modernity postponed helps explain a continent-wide trend towards populism and towards different kinds of revolutionary re- reformist movements in the 20th century. So. Let's talk about the region a little more generally. Um, how does Guatemala fit in into that wider context? Yeah, I think like one of the central arguments of the second half of the book um, is about how the politics of postponement um, and the denial of access to political modernity for a certain set of people um, leads to and helps to facilitate the rise of both populist dictatorship and of revolution. Um, and I think that, that this, in a kind of broad and general, a general way, like how we can all understand that the politics of postponement plays out in, in many different contexts and many different ways, reverberates across the region more generally. Um, And sometimes, you know, it helps us to understand how um, people who have been marginalized by the people, the very people who were the targets of the postponement might find appeals from populist dictators, for example, to be included in the nation. Um, Very very um, appealing to themselves and they might also they're quite attractive these ideas and how they might also find ideas of the revolutionary left quite attractive and so this sometimes comes in the form of you know peasants who populists who reach out to peasants like Cardenas in Mexico or um, you know those who reach out to urban workers like Juan Perón in Argentina under the auspices of the black shirts right and how they use these symbolisms to show that they're really listening to um, these often marginalized people that they're implementing policies in their favor that they're trying to incorporate them and respect them as um, as as agents, historical agents. Um, but in all these cases, the, the the promise is to expand the base of inclusion, to incorporate these excluded individuals into the nation's modernity, and to inaugurate a different world that is no longer defined, right, by postponement. Um, and so we also see this in the case of um, other populist dictators like Trio in the Dominican Republic. And historians have long been sort of confounded as well and tried to understand why um, someone who is engaging in political repression can have such a popular appeal. And I think it is in understanding the effective dimensions, right, the 
feeling tones of the politics of postponement that we can begin to also unravel why um, people might find this attractive. And I think it also calls upon us to understand the potency of historical time and the promise of modernity um, within populist and revolutionary movements. And I think it also helps us to understand the, those same feelings. Um, and to this, I point to you, um, you know, um, Josie Saldana's book on a revolutionary imagination in the Americas, and how she points out how both revolutionaries and, you know, anti-communists and ideas of development, for example, all contained within it the same notion of of the human subject needing to be improved, needing to be granted some kind of, of improvement that would enable them to be proper historical agents, so it would enable them to become proper revolutionaries, for example, or to become good anti-communist citizens. And both, all of them basically containing a seed of the politics of postponement still within them. So while we can understand that at some points and some in some moments why certain populists, even populist dictators, and why some revolutionary movements might be appealing, we can also understand for the exact same reasons why they might fail when they don't incorporate people in a kind of authentic way, um, in a way that understands and grants them agency, in a way that acknowledges their own um, interpretations um, of their own social realities, as in the K, for example, taking seriously indigenous perspectives on and understandings of racial capitalism as on par with that of Karl Marx, for example. So I'm, I'm going to go back and quote you one more time, um, because in, in your introduction, you argue this is this book is a history of how Alta Vera Paz and Guatemala more generally came into being through the state and coffee planters active disavowal of Maya political ontologies and the privileging of coffee capitalism and German settler immigration in the 19th century. But in many ways, as, as you just argued, I think very, very cogently and compellingly, um, one, the book is also, and, and more importantly, an insistence that, and I'm quoting again, Kekchi Maya in Alta Vera Paz continually built innovative political modernities and claimed agency as historic actors in the present. And so not only are they engaging with the the worldviews that they are encountering from the state and from planters, but they are building their own and they are adapting their own um, and creating sort of hybrid imaginaries. And so why is this latter claim that you make such an important intervention in um, how we understand Guatemala, but I would I would also argue how we understand Latin America and the Americas more generally? I think that oftentimes when we are um, dealing with illiterate actors who themselves did not leave an unmediated archival record or sometimes any archival record really at all, we, uh, we confront some kinds of, of problems and challenges in writing those histories at the same time that those histories are absolutely, absolutely crucial. And this isn't necessarily a new problem since you know, at the beginning of the history of from below in the 1960s, historians have grappled with the problem of accessing the voices of marginalized peoples. 
But as those historians have long insisted, we cannot really understand the past without understanding those who were deemed to be without history. What I've tried to do here in this book is to take that argument one step further and to show that not only did Kekchis have a history, but that they themselves envisioned their own actions and thoughts in historical and sometimes world historical terms. And they sometimes called themselves historical agents or referenced their role in promoting historical and national progress. At other times, I think we have, we, you know, I've read, read Kekchi actions since they didn't really leave their own words to illustrate how they might have been seeking to shape their own histories and worlds. And drawing out this history, I think, is doubly important because these same Kekchis were often excluded from citizenship in the nation precisely because they were deemed not to possess a historical agency. They were deemed to be anachronistic, that they belonged to the past. Um, and so bringing them out and showing how they themselves imagined is a crucial counter to those same practices, practices that often kind of continue and reformulate themselves with the age of development, for example. Finally, in showing how state and, and coffee planters actively disavowed and erased these other political projects, we highlight, I think, what could have been, what worlds and histories were foreclosed, were forgotten, and were often violently erased, right? It wasn't just a, a sort of, oh, we'll, we'll forget about what's happening over there, but like an actual active um, and violent repression that close those options down. And so I think that this history of, of indigenous perspectives from below is one that's part of a, a longer trajectory within the Latin American historiography, for sure. Um, and I think as many of us are engaging um, more thoroughly with indigenous perspectives and worldviews and really taking those seriously, we're finding different ways to articulate um, and to read sources um, for what they tell us about about these often forgotten paths. So I just want to reiterate for the listeners that this is a really, really great book, and it's fascinating and absolutely engaging. And so um, I just want to congratulate you on that. But I also want to know what's next for you. Where are you going after um, finishing this book and maybe taking a brief rest? <laughs> Thanks, Elena. Um, I really do hope people find the book useful. Um, and I am now working on a, a new set of projects that are related to Cold War cartographies in Guatemala and Latin America more generally. Um, these projects examine uh, the Inter-American Geodetic Survey, which was a cartographic school that the United States set up in the Panama Canal Zone after World War II. And that school, although it's, it, you know, has largely been neglected, trained thousands of Latin American geographers in these new mapping technologies with quite explicit Cold War purposes. Um, so I want to examine the history of, the, of that survey itself um, and the knowledges that it was produced and the kinds of exchanges that it produced. And I also then want to build on it um, and explore um, geographic knowledge during the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, and not just the geographic knowledges of, you know, official cartographers, but um, also those of 
of who joined um, the revolutionary left or who formed populations of resistance. Um, and I'm concerned with how those were those geographic knowledges were put to different purposes, you know, counterinsurgency to promote large-scale economic development, as well as armed revolution and the forging of alternative communities outside of the state. Um, and so it, this book is a, is a bit of a shift for me um, temporally. I'm moving more into the, into the Cold War period um, and builds uh, quite a bit on a little bit of work that I've done on cartography and some would say a shift from time to space so we'll see how that goes anyway it's exciting for me to to be working on something new anyway well thank you so much for giving us um so much of your time today and i um really appreciate you joining us thanks elaine it was lovely to have to be part of this program and thank you for inviting me and to all of our listeners